Support for Motley Fool Money comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Matt Argusinger from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher, and from Total Income, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hello. Hey, hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got the latest on the Equifax debacle with our guest Nell Minow. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the biggest public company out there. On Tuesday, Apple held their much-anticipated event to announce upgrades to the new Apple Watch and the upgraded Apple TV. The big headline, though, Maddie, the unveiling of the iPhone 10. It comes with facial recognition and a price tag of $1,000. Lots of expensive bells and whistles. Uh, but let's, yeah, let's talk about the iPhone. It's still 70% of Apple's total revenue. I ran across this article by one of our Fool.com writers, uh, Ashraf Issa. I hope I'm getting that right, Ashraf, if you're listening. Uh, he pointed out something interesting with the launch of the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10, and that is, unlike previous launches, you know, Apple's not discontinuing the older models, so you can still they'll still make the the iPhone 7, still make the iPhone 6, even still make the iPhone SE, which is the you know the cheapest model. And I think this is an interesting shift that's not really being talked about in that iPhone now, Apple now has a range in the iPhone, ranging from as low as $350 up to you know over $1,000 for the iPhone 10, and I think that's an important strategic move as they try to gain market share in places like India and China, where you know someone's not going to spend $1,000 for a smartphone. The risk here, of course, is what it does to to Apple's average selling price for the iPhone. I think that's the thing as an investor I want to be watching for. I mean, I want them to be able to gain market share. Around the world with the iPhone, but at the same time, I want to hold on hold on to those high ASPs. If not enough people buy the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10, that's not going to happen. Well, let's face it: consumers love a good installment program, and that's how I think they'll they'll sell this one thousand dollar phone. You know, amortize that over two years. It doesn't feel like a thousand dollars, and even you know now six or seven hundred dollar phones don't feel like six or seven hundred dollar phones because we're paying it off monthly. Um, I, I, I hearken back to the days of the subsidized phone, but those <laughs> days are gone. Um, so I do think this will sell, and I don't think the thousand dollars will scare. Uh, Everyone away, maybe a few, but I, I do think it'll sell. The only piece that I think they're going to have trouble with is the facial recognition. I'm concerned about that. Um, I'm concerned the glitches. I'm concerned people aren't going to like it, and I'm there could be a problem. Yeah, it's one thing, Jeff, to have your fingerprint. I don't know. There just seems, on a gut level, on an emotional level, it's one thing to activate your phone with your thumbprint. It's another thing when it's your face. I may be an exception there because I don't really. Mine that doesn't bother me. If I've given my well, you're handsome. Out, <laughs> that's kind of you. Um, for security reasons, uh, I, there's much more to worry about than, in my opinion, than your face or fingerprint. Once you've already put it out there. But what I want to talk about, Chris, I love the the pivot. Is their headquarters? Their new headquarters look amazing. I think they could sell tickets just to tour that place for a pretty penny. But as to as to the product rollouts, I would give Apple about an A uh, on. 
the new phones, the new watch, and the new Apple TV all look uh, compelling to me, and Apple seems to be executing across the board. You have to be happy, Maddie, if you are the mobile carriers here, because in addition to the excitement around the new phone, there was also some buzz. The latest version of the Apple Watch um, is now going to have cellular service, and there are mobile carriers that are happy to provide that service for an extra ten bucks a month. That's right. I mean, it, more more devices connected to everything, and and I think yeah, I'd also throw in in addition to the Verizon's and AT and T's of the world, the American Towers, the Crown Castles, SBA Communications, all those wireless towers that are enabling all these devices to be connected, and more and more devices are coming online every day. So true, Chris. We didn't even talk about the software enhancements that are upcoming, and then Apple services, which we talk about regularly here on the show, is becoming is a giant business in and of itself, high margin, and it continues to grow. I think I might, you know, I I, I was convinced you asked us this, you know, at least once a year, what's going to be the first trillion dollar publicly traded company, and Apple. We know Apple's had this lead. I almost have to. I, I've been hot on Amazon to that, but now I think Apple's got the momentum. I, they probably do it. And they probably do it. Pretty I don't know. Soon. Should we let Maddie change? Because I said Apple. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not changing. I'm not changing. But I might have to concede here early. Um, so they have the event on Tuesday. Um, pre-orders come later, and people actually getting the this brand new phone in their hands comes later than that. In terms of all the investors out there, when should we expect to see some sort of material uh, result in their results? Well, I mean, this is this is a fourth quarter story, I would say. So this is all about. You know the momentum. The pre-orders I think start at the um, the end of September. Or, I'm sorry, the end is it the end of October? End of September. I can't. I, I'm off by a month. It's going to be it's going to be November before people can actually. Right. Haven't so we I think also start, already started hearing about some inventory problems, perhaps though, which with the higher end phones. You never want to yeah. see that, right? Yeah, it's but. likely to go well into next year, next calendar year, as sales yeah. keep coming. But I think the fourth strong. quarter will get a, their initial look and to see what kind of momentum the phones have, and I, I expect they'll have quite a bit, as, as Ron was alluding to. This week, Target announced. It will be hiring 100,000 seasonal workers for the upcoming holidays. That is a 30% increase over what Target did last year. Ron, am I am I wrong to be slightly optimistic about the retail industry as a result of this? Well, I'm I was a bit surprised. It's actually I hate to correct your math, but it's a 43% increase from the 70,000. 70 to 100,000 is is a 43% increase. Target is seeing something that. I wouldn't have guessed they would be seeing. Um, last quarter for Target was um, not so bad, let's say. Um, they posted an um, increase in, in comparable same-store sales the first time in a while. And they're obviously seeing momentum carry through enough to you know, really um, put, put money on the line and, and take all these people in, including an additional 4,500 people to their distribution centers and fulfillment facilities, which I guess are there to help with their online fulfillment. And that was up 32% last quarter. Um, so, you know, if, if this follows through and turns out to, to be a good decision, then maybe Target is back. I'm I'm in the wait and see mode, to be honest. Well, I, I'm also a little bit in the wait and see mode. And by the way, don't ever feel bad no, about okay. correcting my math. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but Macy's came out with um, their seasonal hiring plan. It's lower than what they did a year ago. Man, I almost feel like we we got to sit on the sidelines and wait and see what Walmart announces because between Walmart and Target, I mean, those are the two biggest dogs when it comes to bricks and mortar. Right, and I, I, I like Ron. I feel like Target's probably. Really, in the second place to that, I think Walmart, the things that Walmart, the investments that Walmart has made, kind of put them in the lead. Uh, you know, if we're not talking about Amazon, I just feel like Target probably hasn't t- taken the big steps that Walmart has. 
On Friday, Oracle shareholders had their worst day in four years. First quarter profits were overshadowed by weak guidance for the rest of the fiscal year. How bad was this, Jeff? Not as bad as Wall Street would uh, have you think. Uh, the revenue guidance for the next quarter is, is for 4.5 to 6.5% top line growth, and earnings per share guidance of 7% to 13% growth. I think what Wall Street was most upset about was the guidance for cloud revenue growth was about 43%, and that's down from 51% this year or this quarter. So you're seeing some deceleration in the cloud business growth, which is the key. You know, pedestal to, to Oracle's future. The company is transitioning from a license-based software business model to a cloud-based, and cloud still only makes up about 16% of its total revenue. So Wall Street likes to see that transition go quickly, more quickly than it is in the upcoming quarter, and that's why they were a little disappointed. But shares are now at 16.7 times estimates for the year, makes it look very reasonable in this market, and I still like the long-term story at Oracle. So, if cloud for Oracle is only about 16% of their revenue, why do you think we are seeing this reaction in the market? Is it because this has become such a fiercely uh, competitive space with, uh, to name a few, uh, Alphabet and Microsoft competing in this space as yeah, well? Yeah, and Salesforce and others, and it's. That's partly it, Chris. Uh, Oracle has been growing more quickly than the industry and key competitors, so it can say, hey, we're taking market share from these people. And that's still true. Uh, but if you see a slowdown, at least even a modest one, you might start to question how much more they can grow and how big they will get in the cloud. Uh, that said, Oracle did buy NetSuite for more than $9 billion in the past year. And that that clouds or distorts this this guidance as well a little bit. Shares of iRobot fell more than 15% this week after appliance maker Shark Ninja launched new products that will compete head-to-head with iRobot's Roomba line. God, that's a great name, Shark Ninja. But uh, <laughs> Maddie, do you think this is an overreaction? I mean, this was this was a story that when this was happening earlier in the week, we were all sort of looking at each other, saying, "Does anyone know what's going on with iRobot?" It, it, and it's not yeah. just that it fell, but it fell on very heavy trading volume. Right, and I think it was down again on Friday as well. I, this this it feels like an overreaction because what I've you know, Shark Ninja has come out with with these with a new ro- you know robotic vacuum cleaner compete with the Roomba. Uh, but it, I think this maybe the drop in iRobot was also accelerated a bit by a, a short report out of Spruce Point Capital, which I hadn't heard of before, which says, you know, hey, Shark Ninja is a credible threat. This is a company, if, if you don't know the Shark Vacuum Cleaners, they kind of took a lot of share from Dyson over recent years. So it's, it's definitely a legitimate competitor. But the reaction to, the, to I, the stock, given that this is a totally new product, it, ha- it hasn't really even hit the market yet. iRobot has, has the market share with Roomba. It seems like a bit of an overreaction. I will point out that iRobot stock was trading for about 50 times earnings before this latest drop, so you had the valuation argument going there as Do well. Do these robots work? I know you've said you, you, you have <laughs> so, them. The, the bizarre thing is, I own both a Roomba and a Shark vacuum cleaner, because the Roomba is great for the once every few days, kind of goes around your apartment or small, if you have a house, cleans it, but it doesn't get the corners, it doesn't get the, the, the tiny That's nooks and I crannies thought. that you need to get, and you need another vacuum cleaner. I felt like Steve when I asked that. Do these work? <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you sounded to me uh, well a little bit like Steve, but you also sounded like someone who might be in the market for a vacuum. I'm in the market for not vacuuming. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. A lot of companies now, Samsung, a lot of companies, Dyson are making robotic vacuum cleaners. So that may be part of the problem. Is now that robots are becoming more a part of our daily lexicon, competition is going to grow 
and iRobot, which has had this lead for all these years and does have all the highest rated robot robotic vacuum cleaners, may see their margins have to come down. Coming up, the coffee wars just got more interesting. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're going to spend all of you. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jeff Fisher, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. You can check out past episodes of Motley Fool Money and all of our podcasts just by going to podcasts.fool.com. You can also test drive our flagship service, Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The brand new issue just came out. Two new stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner. And you also get Best Buys now and a lot more. So check it out by going to podcasts.fool.com and just scroll down to the bottom of the page. You can also check out the new logos. New logos, do. yeah, new podcast Sharp. logos. Every once in a while, we like to you know put on a fresh coat of paint. <laughs> Over the past fifteen years, a few analysts have been as tough on the big banks as Mike Mayo, which is why a few eyebrows were raised this week when Mike Mayo proclaimed that quote U.S. banks have the strongest balance sheets in a generation. You agree with that, Ron? I don't want to because <laughs> banks scare me. <laughs> but I, I think I, I have to. The, the data, I think, bears that out. Um, if you recall, back in June, they had the, the stress test that they performed on banks. All 34 of our institutions passed, including the big boys. Um, and that hasn't always been the case. Um, they have a new um, measure that they have to. Um, you know, beat which is called the supplementary leverage ratio, which makes sure they can handle off-balance sheet exposure as well. Which is one thing that has always scared me. Now the banks will tell you that it's too constraining that they have to beat those kinds of measures, and it hurts their competitive nature. But I think we learned in 2008 that some of those things are necessary. Um, so you know, the Fed also just recently said they could they could you know pay dividends and buy back stock as well as a result of the strength to their balance sheets so all all indications are good it bolsters the argument for some deregulation perhaps being okay um, i know trump uh, certainly wants to push that through I caution. It's a slippery slope. Let's just be careful. Yeah, I, I recently looked, uh, did a, a screen of, of most of the major banks uh, in the U.S. and it's it's quite astounding actually. The the average equity to assets ratio is a, a way of just the safety of a bank. Uh, the average is over thirteen. In in normal previous average cycles, that's in the single digits, like five, six, seven is considered a good equity to assets ratio. It's thirteen, and the average non-performing loans percentage of total assets 05 percent. So it's tiny, and I mean, the banks are about as safe as they've ever been. Whether or not they're good investments, can't you know, tell you that. That's interesting because they're only up about three percent this year in the aggregate versus a market which is what eleven percent or so. So underperforming, yet um, it would appear to be the right time um, if you want to get in. Yeah, it speaks to the fact that they don't see that many places to lend money out to earn good returns. So they have strong balance yeah. sheets, but they're nowhere not. to go. Yep, good point. Nestle is known for its wide portfolio of consumer brands, including Stouffer's Frozen Pizza, Frisky's Cat Food, and Kit Kat Candy Bars. This week, Nestle went for the high end of the coffee market by acquiring a majority stake in Blue Bottle Coffee. Jeff, how worried should the people at Starbucks be? Well, not unworried. They should worry. Is that a word? Yeah, it is now. I would have some concern even before this because specialty higher-end coffee chains are growing in popularity and growing in number. Now that said, they're only about they're going to be about 50 blue bottle cafes by the end of this year and they're mostly on the coast. But Nestle buying them for or they, or they bought a 68% stake for about reportedly 500 million dollars with plans to grow the store base uh, significantly. So 
Starbucks should have its eye on this trend, and it does. It's offering its own high-end uh, store experience and coffee experience as well. But uh, another issue would be just the way a brand ages over time, and Starbucks has been hot for so long that it's bound to cool, and it has in many regards. And if something new uh, comes along and replaces it as your daily habit, that's hard to then uh, get it back in your favor. Uh, we've talked before about how the number of public companies has dwindled over time, and uh, one of the interesting parts of the Blue Bottle coffee story is uh, James Freeman, the founder. He was asked in the wake of this deal, um, "Why wouldn't you just like look to go public?" And he said, and I quote, "Everything that I've seen and read, it seems like a way of living in hell without dying." <laughs> so James Freeman that might be an exaggeration, but I had, the sentiment is is well taken. Not someone aspiring to. Be a public company CEO. No, and he was a clarinet player before this, and then he he followed his other passion of coffee. Uh, it's disappointing though because Blue Bottle is a company I was watching, hoping someday it would go public. And this is an, another case where investors like us are taken out of the mix as far as getting rewarded uh, from a growing company. That said, he also said, you know, we're going to maintain control. We're not going to be selling Nestle bars in our cafes, and we're going to do everything we want to do. That sounds a little naive to me. When you've sold 68% of your company to a giant like Nestle, who's going to want to then drive your results? For many investors, Tuesday, September 12th, was all about Apple's unveiling of the iPhone X. But there was another launch that didn't get quite as much attention, Chipotle's nationwide release of all-natural queso. What do we think? Is this going to move the needle for them? Maddie, uh, I I like queso like like any other guy who likes Mexican food, but uh, I you know I don't know it, like like we talked about before the show it might be a little additive to the ticket the total tickets that people are, are doing when they go to Chipotle, but nah, not much not a needle mover. I gotta say, Ron, I was a little excited about this <laughs> until I saw that it was all natural. I like my queso <laughs> to just be manufactured. Right, most, most queso out there has has things called stabilizers put in to, to make sure it uh, maintains that creamy texture. And uh, Chipotle had to find a way around that. Um, we'll, hmm. we'll see how it tastes and 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 what the what the mouth feel, for lack of a better word, is like. Um, but. It's not 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 my thing. As someone who's going to get used to um, liquids real soon, <laughs> real fast, is our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, who's just days away from having his tonsils taken out. Uh, Steve, you going to hit a Chipotle before the surgery just to get a little queso and chips, maybe? Well, not if there's no stabilizers. <laughs> <laughs> Afraid they're made by that weird wheel company Ron keeps talking about. <laughs> Titan. <laughs> and don't be, don't be harsh on Titan. All right, Ron Gross, Matt Argusing, and Jeff Fisher, guys. We'll see you later in the show. The situation with Equifax seems to get worse by the day, and up next, we will dig into the latest with our guest, Nell Minow. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. All right, before we get to Nell Minow, I want to say thanks to our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Chances are Chipotle is confident about the queso that they rolled out. Fingers crossed there. Well, Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple. It allows you to fully understand all the details and be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Why is Nell Minow our most frequent guest on this show? Because she's a film critic and we love movies, and because she's a corporate governance expert and we cannot turn away from the spectacle of companies screwing up. Nell, good to talk to you. Well, thank you. Um, it's been a while since we've had a screw-up quite as big as this one. Yeah, that's. we're going to start with Equifax, uh, a company uh, which has lost a third of its market cap in just over a week. And for those who may have missed it, a massive data breach that exposed the personal data of nearly 150 million Americans. And the number of investigations into Equifax seems to be growing by the day. Let's start with this. What type of review do you give Equifax in the way they have handled this so far? Um, I give them an F. Um, is there a better, lower grade? I don't. You know, it, they they really pretty much have done everything wrong. Uh, uh, was it Chuck Schumer who said this is the biggest corporate catastrophe since Enron? Um, I, I think that's right. The difference between this and other data breaches is that. You can say, well, you know, I I gave my credit card to Target and they breached it, but I'll get a new credit card and it won't cost me anything and I've got no downside risk whatsoever. Nobody voluntarily gave their information to Equifax. This is much more vital and personal information than has ever been breached before. It's obviously a bigger breach in terms of numbers of people affected than ever before. The preliminary information that we have so far uh, is is beyond shocking, uh, including that they had um, some knowledge and, and ability to prevent this and that they didn't do it. And, and the most shocking of all, is it possible that, that officers in the company sold the stock before the announcement? Because if that's true, that is, that is mind-blowing in its stupidity and, um, and, and carelessness. I'm glad you mentioned the other data breaches, because I think whether it's Target or Home Depot or in certain name of any company that has had a data breach over the last few years, and there have been many, mm-hmm. I think it is easy for the average person to see the headline about Equifax and lump it this incident in with all those others. And as you said, this is so different from those. This is the cookies. I mean, this is it. This is, you know, even though when the Social Security law was first passed, they specifically said this will never be used as an identifier. Of course, it is used as an identifier. This is the single most important set of digits in your life, and it is gone now. What are we going to do? CEO Richard Smith is scheduled to testify before Congress on October 3rd. Uh, What would you ask him if you were up there on the dais? Uh, I would say, whose idea was it that when you logged in to find out if your information had been breached, you waived your right to sue. Uh, because, again, that is, that is mind-blowingly uh, idiotic. Um, whose idea was it that the one year of protection that you are offering to provide then um, just uh, turns over into a permanent fee that you're imposing. Are you planning to make money off of this? And uh, I would also, um, uh, I have a friend who's an expert in cybersecurity who tells me that the single biggest problem in cybersecurity is that people are not upgrading 
immediately when they get uh, the notice that uh, that security holes need to be plugged. I would ask them a lot of very detailed questions about how they respond to that. And, uh, of course, I would ask them about this insider trading thing because that's, uh, that's a, a disaster. Where is Equifax's board of directors on this? Because uh, I think it was Jim Cramer on CNBC earlier this week who asked uh, a, the perfectly logical question, what do you have to do to get fired these days? That is the perfectly logical question, and I think that the top management will be out very soon, but I would like to see some real changes on the board as well. And by the way, uh, let's talk about Wells Fargo for a minute. I cannot believe that after um, all they've been through, that they still are releasing more information about, oops, we forgot to mention that there were some other uh, bad things that we did and some other accounts that we created and some other insurance uh, products that we sold without telling people. And uh, and yet they have not had a complete redo of the board. So I'm glad you mentioned Wells Fargo because we had talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and one of my colleagues made the point uh, in reference to Equifax. He referred back to Wells Fargo and just said, "You know what? This is one of those situations where if this were a much smaller company, if Equifax were smaller, if Wells Fargo was a small community bank." The feds would be kicking in the doors. Why? What is it about yeah, companies I, I, getting to a certain size where it's almost like, well, we're not really going to punish them? Well, it's it's too big to fail all over again. That's exactly the problem. There was a great documentary on Frontline on PBS this week called Abacus, which is about exactly that situation. Uh, one of the smallest banks in New York was the only one that was indicted uh, following the subprime meltdown, and they were ultimately vindicated and were found not guilty on all you know two hundred some counts that were brought against them. But uh, the, the, what Matt Tabe interviewed in that documentary said, "There's too big to fail, and they're small enough to jail." And uh, it's just terrible. Uh, Jesse Eisinger's new book, which uh, we won't say the name because it's got a bad word in it, but his new book about why nobody went to prison after the subprime is definitely worth reading. I don't agree with everything he says in it, but I do agree that we have a huge problem that the the bank industry comes in and they create these loopholes and then they benefit from them. All right, let's move on from Equifax. Uh, Obviously, the big story of the last few weeks has been the impact of Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane uh, Irma. Uh, Natural disasters can bring out the best in individuals, and we've actually seen some of that with businesses as well. Um, Mattress Mac, which is the furniture retailer in Houston, opening up its showrooms as shelters is one example. Has anything caught your eye in terms of how businesses have responded to these storms? Well, uh, you know, is it Coors that uh, that sent uh, water? They stopped making beer and they sent water. Uh, I thought that was really great. Um, but I think what has impressed me more than the response to the storms is that um, in this upside-down world we're living in right now, it's business leaders who have been more forthright about the importance of responding to climate change than the government. Climate change was part of the focus of an event you just attended, the 2017 Public Funds Forum, um, sort of the increasing shareholder focus on climate change. How is that playing out in the investing community? Well, we had a, a real turning point this year with 
three companies that had almost two-thirds votes of shareholders. That's an amazing uh, vote on climate change resolutions at uh, ExxonMobil, Occidental, and PPL. And I think, in part, it is because of a concern that the government is not handling this problem anymore, and we're going to have to go at it through uh, the, the the market. And, uh, and it's been interesting to me that as uh, Trump pulled out of the Paris Accords and has uh, put uh, climate denial people into EPA and Interior, that it has been business leaders like Immelt uh, who get up and say, no, wait a second, this is a real thing. What I thought was very interesting in the public funds forum was that it's not just about going after the um, fossil fuel companies. It's more about uh, looking at supply chain issues and how they're affected by climate change and also looking at business opportunities with climate change. Are people taking advantage of what is uh, increasing customer concerns and customer openness to um, to products that are are useful. And I thought that President Clinton, who was our keynote speaker at this event, made an amazing point where he said that of all of the uh, uh, Indian lands that are profiting from casinos, he said that is a fraction of what they could make if they would open up their lands to wind and solar. Another topic covered at the conference uh, seems like it was tailor-made for you personally, and that is the risk of having quote-unquote superstar directors <laughs> on a board of directors. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite presentations was from a former prosecutor uh, who worked on uh, complex financial cases, and he said, I'm going to give you an example in the hundreds of millions, and then I'm going to give you an example in the billions, and then I'm going to give you an example in the hundreds of billions. And so he took us through the Trump University case, uh, the uh, Theranos, and Volkswagen, and um, particularly in the case of Theranos, he said the biggest red flag in the world is a superstar board, and you go in and you talk to them, and they'll say, what, meetings, <laughs> votes, what, we, yeah, huh? So, uh, you know, nope, don't put Henry Kissinger on any more boards, please. It, it seems a little counterintuitive, though, because, uh, again, on the surface of it, it would seem as though someone who is accomplished, whether it's Henry Kissinger or someone from the business world or anyone who has achieved some level of professional success in their life, on paper, you would think that's a good person to have in the boardroom because ideally that is a person who doesn't need this job, doesn't need the paycheck of being on the board, and therefore he or she is going to speak his or her mind, and that's what we need in the boardroom. Yeah, unfortunately, that has turned out not to be true. In fact, we were joking at the uh, at the conference uh, that we used to say that uh, the biggest sell signal in the world was a former Tennessee senator on the board because uh, Howard Baker and Fred Thompson uh, and Al Gore Sr. had all been on boards that uh, that were disasters, and uh, sure enough, um, there was one on the board of Theranos as well. So that that may be uh, something we want to track in the future. The problem is Henry Kissinger, who of course was on the board of one of the biggest disaster boards of all time, Hollinger, uh, is that a lot of these people are used to kind of swanning in and uh, shaking hands and going home, and that's why I you know keep emphasizing it's important to rate boards not on their resumes but on their decisions, and if they overpay the CEO, that's usually a good indicator that uh, they're really not uh, doing their job. 
All right, let's move on to movies. And the summer box office numbers were the worst in a decade. Even Wonder Woman could not save Hollywood this summer. Um, when you look at that, do you think, well, this is the continuation of a trend that we've seen in terms of ticket sales? Or do you think, you know what? Wonder Woman aside, the slate of blockbusters this summer was generally pretty bad. It was pretty poor. And they put a lot of money into movies like Baywatch. You remember that the last time I was on, I predicted that The Mummy was not going to do well. And it was a dumb, 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 dumb movie. You know, the movie studios are really facing a conundrum as they are now really at the tipping point of selling more tickets overseas than in the U.S. They find that witty, thoughtful scripts um, are not good overseas. And so they've really dumbed down the scripts. And that's why if people ask all the time, why are television shows all of a sudden so much smarter than movies? And the answer is that television is a writer's medium. The writers control the show, whereas in movies, the writer is at the bottom of the totem pole. And so, uh, and so movies i got to say, they're kind of dumb. Uh, you know, Wonder Woman was great. I'm delighted uh, at its success. Um, I'm disappointed that the movie that I was predicting to be a big hit this summer was a big flop, and that was Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. But that's another good example where the script was just not up to the level of the special effects. They've got to find a way to fix that. But the fall has got all the uh, big award movies coming down the pike, and we've got some very promising ones now. Yeah, that's uh, that was going to be my last question. What are you looking forward to this fall, and therefore, what should we be looking forward to this fall? <laughs> well, coming up very soon, and I've seen it already, so I could tell you it's great, is Battle of the Sexes, based on the real-life tennis match between Bobby Riggs and uh, Billie Jean King. And what makes that movie great is that it's fun to see that they were real, human, vulnerable people in the middle of that crazy media circus. And in a way, it's funny that, you know, uh, Billie Jean King's um, tennis uh, group was sponsored by Virginia Slims, which seems absurd kind of now. But their their theme was, you've, you've come a long way, baby. And um, we have come a long way since then, but we've still got a long way to go. But I thought that movie was really well done. Steve Carell looks and sounds so much like Bobby Riggs. It's eerie. It is. It is really um, disconcerting. And, of course, they got pictures of the real Bobby Riggs afterward and uh, uh, at the end of the movie, and uh, you really do a double take. Corporate governance, movies, and that's why Nell Minow is our most frequent guest on this show. Thanks for being here, Nell. Bye-bye. Up next, we'll dip into the full mailbag and give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Ron Gross, Jeff Fisher, and Matt Argus-Singer. The brand new edition of the Motley Fool Investment Guide is available now. You can get more details. Just go to book.fool.com. It is already a bestseller on Amazon. So check it out at book.fool.com. Our email address is radio at fool.com and our dozens of listeners coming through as they always do. Because as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, in a few days, our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, will be getting his tonsils out. And we asked 
the dozens of listeners for some advice for Steve, and they did not disappoint. From West Childress, I had my tonsils out when I was 40. It took a full month before I was 100%. Have someone take a picture of you pointing to the pain chart when they roll you out of surgery. Trust me, it will be funny later. From William Hoyle. Ask for the liquid pain medication. (laughs) Talk a little bit as soon as possible. On the first day, I sang. It hurt like hell, and I sounded awful, so I didn't do it for very long. (laughs) And finally, from Chris Weaver, I don't mean to scare you, Steve, but I had my tonsils out when I was 23 years old, and it was the worst pain of my life. Oh, Oh, with that, have a good weekend, Steve. With that, have a good weekend, Steve. Uh, We're going to get to the stocks on our radar. Ouch. Steve will hit you with a really great question because uh, he's going to be out for a couple of weeks uh, and won't be able to ask any questions. Uh, Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? How do I follow that? Um, Vail Resorts, MTN. Um, Skiers will know it for its luxury resorts, Breckenridge, Beaver Creek, Whistler. They recently acquired Stowe. Interesting fact here, 2011 law signed by Barack Obama gave ski resorts the ability to add summertime activities, and Vail has been doing that slowly over time to lessen the seasonality of the business. As you can imagine, a ski resort is a very seasonal business. Um, So they'll be adding zip lines, mountain bikes, golf courses, rope courses um, that should help growth in terms of revenue. Hopefully, that'll translate to growth in earnings as well. Stock should have some nice upsides, also pays a 1.8% dividend. Steve, question about Vail Resorts. Is there an age that you're too old to go skiing? I know that the simple answer is no, but I'm not skiing anymore. I'm over 40. I'm, I'm done. That ship has sailed. I think you're more likely to tear something, break something, or sprain something, I think, once you're 35 plus. Jeff Fisher, what are you looking at? I feel like I should recommend ice cream or something to <laughs> Steve, but I'm going back to Oracle because it is down the most in four years this Friday. Uh, to end the week. And this company's margins are going higher as it sells more cloud software. The shares look inexpensive at this point, and I think the long-term trajectory at the business is perfectly fine. And the ticker symbol? O-R-C-L. Steve, question about Oracle? What does Oracle actually do? I've heard of Oracle for (laughs) decades now, and I feel like I still have no idea what it does. So it's one of the largest business enterprise software sellers in the world, Steve. Mainly, it sells database software and software that lets you manage your human resources or your analytics or your governance, all those sorts of things, many other things beyond that. So it's software management. Does that clear it up, Steve? Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Matt Argersinger, what are you looking at? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty bearish on the railroads right now, and I'm particularly bearish on CSX, uh, ticker CSX. Uh, it's, it's one of the largest railroads uh, in the world, it's, but it's very dependent on coal, uh, which for all intents and purposes is pretty much a dying commodity. Um, freight, freight traffic in general is slowing down. Hunter Harrison, who is a very successful manager, railroad CEO for, for many decades now, he was hired about nine months ago by CSX, paid $84 million dollars, but apparently, he's might be stepping down soon because of health problems. Uh, he is 73 years old. Stock trades for almost 30 times earnings. So I'd say stay away from CSX. Steve, question about CSX? Isn't train uh, uh, transporting things via train the most efficient way to get things across the country? Still, cost per mile, it's almost nothing. No doubt, it is. Uh, but my, what I'm worried about is just the amount of stuff they're, they're going to be able to haul uh, soon when they're so dependent on commodities and other things that are just the demand is just plunging. 
CSX, uh, Oracle, Vail Resorts, three very different companies. Steve, you got one you want to add to your watch list? I might take a look at Vail Resorts in the Woo-hoo. summertime. Sounds like a nice place to be. Uh, Steve, we wish you all the best with your recovery, and, and we will check in with you at some point. Uh, when it comes to milkshakes, uh, which you'll be, I'm assuming, consuming a lot of over the next few weeks, uh, what's your go-to flavor? Well, you know, they say to stay away from dairy, uh, oddly enough, so uh, there won't be probably any milkshakes. There'll be protein shakes, because I've got to keep keep my girlish figure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ron Gross, Jeff Fisher, Matt Argusinger, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks, Chris. Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.